Do you want more Night Falls in your life? We're excited to announce Tales from Night Falls, a new series of short stories exclusive to our Patreon supporters. Stay tuned after the show to learn more. And now, welcome back to Night Falls, California. All right, now I just want to make sure I got all this straight. So this sly guy walks up to you in the Redwood parking lot this morning, panhandles you for 10 bucks, then goes inside, gets breakfast. That's right. Then fast forward to, what was it, two hours ago? Something like that. All right. Now you and Charlie are sitting in the bookstore having some coffee, and the guy shows up again, gives you back the money. Yes. Well... Charlie wasn't at the table when he showed up. Okay. When she comes back to the table, three of you sit around for a minute or so, shooting the shit, and then Charlie tells you it's time to go. More or less. Something about him really upset her. Hmm. What was that? I honestly don't know. He seemed strange, but that was it. Didn't you talk to her about that? I tried. I mean, she was too worked up to tell me anything beyond a basic sequence of events. Which is understandable. Yep, I'm gonna have to talk to her again tomorrow, though. Hopefully she's calmed down by then. Would you be? (laughs) Yeah, probably not. Alright, anyway. So, you drive her back home. She goes upstairs. You hear her screaming her head off. You run up to her room, find it looking like the Manson family just butchered Bambi. Is that right? Yeah, that's... that's pretty much it. Well, fuck me. Chief Nellis closes his notebook with a loud sigh. The Cooper house is bustling with activity both inside and out. After finding the deer carcass in Charlie's room, I called 911 while Sydney tried to calm Charlie down. This was easier said than done, as the ghastly scene left Sydney rattled as well. Luckily, Travis arrived a few minutes later, with the police showing up not too long after him. The next hour passed by in a blur. Everyone in the house, Travis included, seemed to be asked the same set of questions by at least three different officers. What happened? Did you see anyone strange outside of the house? Uh, Is there any way anyone could have gotten in without being seen? Finally, Charlie's room was taped off and a forensic investigation began. At this time, the chief and Raymond Daniels, the same officer who had first reported Charlie's reappearance what seems like a lifetime ago, began interviewing us in earnest. The chief interviewed Charlie first, for obvious reasons while Daniel started on Sydney and, by extension, her mother. I was instructed by the chief to wait outside by his car. It was another 20 minutes or so before he came outside to meet me and get my recap of events. You know, I'm starting to think you're cursed. What? Well, I mean, think about it. You roll into town, all sorts of crazy shit starts happening back to back to back. Then things start quieting down and boom! Here you are at the Cooper house with a dead deer and a story about a crazy hobo. You can't honestly think I had anything to do with this, can you? Nah. But it is weird, ain't it? That's one way to put it. The chief just shakes his head. I notice two paramedics carrying what I would assume to be the deer out of the house in a body bag. Presumably it's being taken in for an autopsy or some other type of examination. Though it's entirely possible they'll just toss it into a freezer somewhere to keep as evidence. I'm not quite sure. So, have you found out anything? I know it's still early, but... The chief rubs his hand on the back of his neck, thinking. Ah, what the hell, you're gonna find out eventually. 
Besides, it's not like you're the one who did it. You're not, are you? What? Uh, of course not. You're messing with me. Hey, you're learning. Good for you. Thanks. Uh, to be honest, I got squat. Didn't see any signs of fourth century. Uh, I don't know how he would have gotten the carcass into the house without making a shit ton of noise and a huge goddamn mess. And I don't know how he would have gotten out without anybody seeing him. It's just, it's weird, man. I think of the symbols drawn on the wall around Sly's message. The ones that match the symbol on the necklace that I found when cleaning out Charlie's room. It's a long shot, but it wouldn't hurt to ask. So, Chief. Rich. Rich. That, I don't know what to call it. Symbol or, or mark that was drawn on the wall? Yeah, what about it? Do you have any idea what it is? Or what it means? Not a clue. Honestly, I'm kind of hoping it, uh, it's some freaky cult shit. I think that'd be neat. Really? Well, hell yeah. Well, I guess it'd certainly be a change of pace for you. <laughs> I know, right? But in all seriousness, uh, no. I've never seen it before. What about you? No. Well, maybe you should put those investigative journalism skills to use. Do some digging. I just might do that. And if you figure it out, give me a call. At this point, Sydney Cooper walks out of the house. She makes her way down to the sidewalk and over towards us. There she is. How you doing? Not great, to be honest. Yeah, I'll bet. What about your mom? She's fine. She doesn't seem to understand why all these people are in her house, or why they're asking her all these questions. It's pretty much par for the course for her. How are you doing, Scott? Me? I'm fine. Good. So, did you find anything? Well, it's still early, but uh, if I'm being honest, I, I got nothing so far. But we'll keep looking. You know, see if we can figure something out. Oh. Yeah, you know, if it's alright with you, I was planning on leaving a couple of my officers stationed here. You know, just to keep an eye on things. That'd be great, actually. I'd appreciate it. Oh, of course. And just between you, me, and uh, Rider Boy here, I'm happy to keep him here as long as you need. Thank you. Chief Nellis gives Sydney a warm smile. For a brief moment, it seems that the Chief's gruff exterior and flippant nature melt away to reveal a hidden, softer side. I wonder if he has kids. Almost immediately, however, the Chief I know returns as he looks behind Sydney and his smile disappears. Oh, whoa, whoa! Where do you think you're going? Travis and Charlie have just walked out of the house and towards Travis's truck. Charlie clings tightly to Travis's arm. When they hear the chief, they stop and look at him. They both look like, for lack of a better expression, deer caught in the headlights. Well, we were going to head back to my place. No, not yet you're not. I ain't done with you yet. But I already told you everything I know. And I appreciate that sincerely. But I was talking about him. The chief points at Travis in a way that seems almost accusatory. Travis's face goes pale. Me? Why? I think you know why. Come on, let's go for a drive. Sydney and I exchange a puzzled glance, then look back at Travis. He's starting to sweat. Wait, I told you he got here right before you did. He doesn't know anything. I know you did, and I'm not saying he does. I just want to talk to him, all right? Just privately. You're not arresting me, are you? What did I just say? 
I just want to chat. Come on. Come on. We'll, we'll just drive around the block a few times. When we're done, I'll drop you right back here and you can go have your little sleepover, alright? Travis and the Chief stare at each other. The Chief's face conveys an intensity that I didn't think was possible. Even when he first learned that Charlie had been found, he was unable to completely hide a small glimpse of his jovial personality and almost childish sense of humor. Now all of that is gone. Travis looks terrified. And after a rather uncomfortable amount of time passes, Charlie, still clinging to Travis's arm, stands on her toes and whispers something in his ear. His face changes, and the fear in his eyes seems to subside somewhat, replaced with something more like apprehension. You sure? Yeah. All right. Charlie lets go of Travis's arm as he walks towards Chief Nellis. The chief crosses to the passenger side door of his car and opens it. And I'm not in trouble? No, but you are about three steps away from me beating your ass. That'd be police brutality, wouldn't it? Get in the fucking car, Travis. Okay, okay. As soon as Travis gets into the car, the chief slams the door shut. I can see Travis jump a little in his seat. Shaking his head, the chief walks to the driver's side door. Before he gets in, he looks at Charlie. I'll bring him back. Promise. Charlie, her arms crossed, says nothing, merely nodding in acknowledgement. With a sigh, the chief gets into the car. Within 30 seconds, the car drives off, taking the chief and Travis with it. Charlie, Sydney, and I stand in silence for a few moments, watching as the car drives down the street. Soon, it turns a corner and is gone from our sight. Sydney walks over to Charlie, who's still looking down the street. So, you're going over to Travis's place. Charlie sniffs as she wipes a tear from her eye. She looks at her feet, seemingly avoiding eye contact with Sydney. Yeah. You staying the night? That's the plan. How about tomorrow? Sid, please. I'm just asking you a question. Can we not do this now? All I want to know is if you're planning on coming back. Charlie looks up at Sydney. Her face is almost expressionless. Sydney, you saw my room. I can't believe you think I'd be able to sleep here ever again. Wow, okay. Don't need to be snippy about it. Do you honestly still feel safe here? Well, it doesn't really matter if I do, does it? What are you talking about? I mean, it's great that you have some place you can go where you feel safe. But unfortunately, I don't have that luxury. Sid, I- Don't get me wrong. I don't blame you. Honestly, I think it's kind of amazing that you being missing for 10 years and Travis being a self-destructive train wreck of a human being hasn't seemed to put a damper on your relationship at all. Charlie and Sydney stare at one another. After what feels like an eternity, Sydney crosses her arms and looks down. Listen, I didn't mean- I think you should go see how Mom's doing. <sighs> yeah. Without another word, Sydney turns and walks into the house. Charlie watches her for a moment, then turns towards me. As soon as we make eye contact, I look away. I feel my face turn red in embarrassment. A few seconds later, I hear the sound of Charlie's footsteps approaching me. You enjoy the show? I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) You're a terrible liar. I'm so sorry. I didn't know what to do, so I just kind of... stood there. I didn't mean to eavesdrop. It's fine. I'm sorry you had to see that. (laughs) Oh. Uh, No need to apologize. Are you okay? Yeah. She's just being a brat. It's how she copes with stress. (laughs) Always has been. I see. It's fine. We're... fine. I get where she's coming from. Yeah. For a while, 
Charlie and I stand in silence. The hustle and bustle in and around the house seems to have subsided somewhat. With the removal of the deer carcass done, and the examination of the crime scene apparently finished, the remaining police officers seem to be standing around chatting, waiting for the chief to return and give them the all-clear to pack up. You should probably go home and get some rest. Huh? You don't need to stand out here in the cold with me. It's fine if you go. Oh, uh, I couldn't do that. I'll wait until the chief gets back with Travis. Scott, my house is literally full of nightfall's finest. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'm about to protest further when it dawns on me that Charlie is actually asking me to leave. She's too polite to say it, but the rest of the night will most likely be filled with family drama that, to put it bluntly, isn't really my business. I suppose you're right. But if you change your mind, you can always call me. I will. Thank you. Charlie and I look at each other somewhat awkwardly for a moment. Well, I'll see you, Charlie. See you. I put my hands in my pockets and give her a smile before turning and walking back towards my car. I only make it a few feet before... Scott? Yeah? I turn back towards Charlie. She's looking down at her feet, her arms crossed. Her brow is furrowed and mouth slightly open, as if she's about to say something. After a few seconds, she does. Have you ever had a really bad nightmare? Like one that sticks with you even after you wake up? Kind that makes you scared to go back to sleep? Yes. I've been having dreams like that lately. Never since I woke up from the hospital. <laughs> I see. Yeah. You know, I read somewhere that our brains can't make up faces when we dream. So everyone we meet in our dreams is someone we've met at least once in real life. Have you ever heard that? I remember seeing it somewhere. Do you think it's true? I don't know, honestly. I don't know enough about that sort of thing to say one way or the other. Charlie exhales deeply, then looks back at the house, up at her bedroom window. I hope it's not. Back in my room at the bed and breakfast, I lay on my bed. I'm exhausted, but I can't bring myself to go to sleep. Honestly, I'm afraid to. I try to wrap my head around the events of the past few days. Maybe the chief is right. Maybe I am cursed. Nightfalls has been relatively quiet for an entire decade since Charlie's disappearance. Then, as soon as I arrived, Charlie came back. And then there's the dreams I've been having. I never had dreams so vivid before. It's almost as if something was sleeping here, waiting for me. Maybe it was the town itself, or maybe it was something darker. I sit up and look towards the closet door. After a moment's hesitation, I stand and walk over towards it. I open the door and kneel down in front of the chest of drawers and pull out the bottom drawer. Reaching into the cabinet, I find the necklace, safely stowed exactly where I left it. I pull out the necklace and look at it. It feels as though the eldritch symbol carved into it stares back at me. Through me, even. After seeing it painted in blood on Charlie's bedroom wall, I'm almost ashamed to say it seems to have gone from unsettling to morbidly fascinating. I just wish I knew what it meant. I place the necklace back in the cabinet and replace the drawer. It's a long shot, but maybe Craig has something in his research library that could give me an answer. 
I look at my watch. It's getting close to midnight. I wonder if I can find some coffee downstairs. Craig's research library is located in Randolph Knight's old study. At least, that's what I assume it was based on the room's appearance. The room is almost perfectly square, with a fireplace on the far side, and bookshelves lining nearly every bit of available wall space. A chandelier hangs from the ceiling, and a beautiful vintage rug covers most of the floor. An armchair sits in one corner of the room, next to a reading lamp, and in the center is an ornate desk. Walking over to the desk, I set my mug of coffee down on a coaster, both of which I borrowed from the restaurant downstairs. Looking at the countless books around the room, I'm not sure where to start. Eventually, I decide to pick a shelf at random and go from there. I pull several books off the shelf and walk back over to the desk. I spend the next few hours flipping through book after book. History books, science books, books about forestry. For the most part, nothing I find seems to have much information that I don't already know. Usually the books don't have much to say about Night Falls other than a mention of Randolph Knight or the Knight Timber Company. Eventually, I stop searching for anything in particular and begin just skimming through the books, only leaving to use the restroom and refill my coffee. This goes on for hours, with nothing to show for it other than a newfound understanding of the anatomy of banana slugs. I'm coming close to calling it a night, or I suppose an early morning, when I find something interesting. A tattered paperback book titled Darkness in the Redwood Empire. Its exterior is very bland. The entire thing is a generic cream color, with the only text on it being its title on the front cover, with the author's name Ransom Fortner underneath. It appears to be a proof copy, a copy of a book sent to an author before publication for proofreading purposes. I flip open the book, not sure what to expect. I'm surprised to find that it's a book of poetry. At least, I think it's supposed to be poetry. Most of the entries don't have any sort of rhyming scheme, and many of them are formatted in such a way that it's difficult to tell how they're supposed to be read. I flip through page after page of this book. Most, if not all of the poems, deal with very macabre subject matter. The most common theme being death. I'm just about to put the book down when something catches my eye. The title of one of the poems, The Shadow Man of Shadow Creek. And next to it, drawn with what seems to have been a ballpoint pen, is the symbol. I can feel my pulse start to race from the combination of caffeine and adrenaline now coursing through my system. I start to read. Great Silent watches through the trees, the Shadow Man of Shadow Creek. Weshuge smiles for bloody deeds the shadow man of Shadow Creek. What once was many, now only thee, the shadow man of Shadow Creek. Two is one, one is two. What is, is not. What was, no more. When time grows near, the world does split, where lost ones weep and madman howls. Waters diverge and all can see the shadow man of Shadow Creek. Well, you're up early. Oh my God. In a flash, I slam the book down and turn around. Craig West stands in the doorway of the study. He wears a startled look on his face and holds his hands up in front of him. Whoa, whoa, just me. Craig, hi. Morning, sunshine. Sorry, I, I didn't expect to see you this early. I could say the same. I figured you'd still be asleep so I came to do some cataloging. Oh, I see. Sorry, I'll get out of your way. I can wait. 
I can see you're busy. Oh, no, just some light reading. Really? Because you seemed pretty engrossed when I walked in just now. Craig squints at me slightly, then looks at the piles of books on the desk. Actually, if I didn't know any better, I'd say you just pulled an all-nighter. Did you sleep? Yeah. A bit. Why? Did you? Scott. S sorry. I I've had an interesting 12 hours. That's weirdly specific. Uh, did the police chief have anything to do with it? Um, sort of. How'd you know? Well, uh, last night, I was just about to go to bed when my phone rings. And as soon as I pick up, Chief Nellis starts grilling me about breakfast yesterday and asking about the weird guy that we saw in the parking lot. He sounded very annoyed about the whole thing, more than usual. I see. Well, that sounds about right. So, do you know what's going on, or is it some big secret? Well, I wouldn't exactly say it's a secret, but... I proceed to explain last night's events to Craig. The seemingly perpetual smile on his face slowly starts to fade, disappearing completely by the time I get to the part about the deer carcass in Charlie's bedroom. I nearly tell him about the symbol being drawn on the wall in blood, but glancing quickly at the book in front of me, I decide against it, instead only mentioning the message. I'll tell him about the symbol eventually, though I'd like to see if he knows anything about it before I do. Well, uh, that sounds horrifying. Yeah. Last night was rough. I can imagine. I guess I can't blame you for not wanting to sleep after going through that. Give me nightmares for a week. Yeah. Nightmares. So, you're doing a little research to get your mind off things, then? Something like that. Find anything useful? I'm not sure yet. But I did find something I wanted to ask you about, actually. Go right ahead. Craig makes his way over to the armchair opposite me and sits. So while I was looking through your research materials, I found this book, uh, Darkness in the Redwood Empire. As I say the title of the book, Craig rolls his eyes. Oh, that. I take it you're not a fan? I mean, did you read any of it? Well, not all of it. Did you like any of what you read? I mean, it was certainly... Terrible? Interesting. I suppose that's one way to look at it. If you hate it so much, why is it in your library? Well, it was a gift. Um, and I feel like it should be in here for its historical value, at least. It certainly doesn't have any artistic merit, at least in my opinion. I gathered as much. Sorry, what do you want to know about it? Well, I'm not sure where to start. I'm curious as to why you think it has historical value. Oh, that's easy. Uh, so the guy who wrote it? Ransom Fortner? Yeah. Uh, he was a first-generation Night Falls local. Oh, that's neat. He was also completely nuts. Oh. Yeah. Do you mean, like, eccentric, or...? I mean, like, he was Night Falls' first major murder case. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was 1968, I want to say. Uh, he had just signed a contract with a publisher to put out a book of his poetry, which is what you've got right there. Uh, when he murdered his wife and son and hung himself in his garage. Oh. Oh my god. That's... Messed up, right? Awful. Yeah, that too. Did they find out why he did it? I mean, he was crazy. I don't think you need much more than that. Did he have a history of, of violence of that sort? Well, not that I know of. As far as I know, he seemed like a normal guy before he did it, but, uh... But... I mean, you read his stuff. He was a psycho killer waiting to happen. Well, I mean, knowing what he did, I guess I can see that. Yeah. What possessed you to pick that up, of all things? 
I'm not sure, really. It was honestly just random. Uh-huh. I did find something interesting in it, though. And what would that be? Come here. Craig stands and walks towards the desk. I flip the book around towards him and point at the symbol drawn in it. Craig leans down and looks at it. Did you draw that? No. Do you know who did? No. Do you know what it is? Not a clue. You're a limitless supply of knowledge, Craig. Thanks. Do you know anything about the poem, at least? Craig picks up the book and studies the poem as we speak. How do you mean? Well, it's called The Shadow Man of Shadow Creek. Yeah? Is that Shadow Creek like THE Shadow Creek? Most likely. Then what's the Shadow Man? Craig shrugs as he places the book down on the table. Well, uh, the Shadow Man is why it's called Shadow Creek. Really? Yeah. Uh, when they first started building the mill, people claimed they saw some sort of weird shadowy figure up there along the creek. Doing what? I don't know. Watching them, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. And anytime anything bad happened, uh, either at the mill or out in the forest, they just started blaming the Shadow Man. Do you think there was any truth to that? Of course not. It's a made-up thing. It's not real. It's like, uh, it's like Bigfoot. They could have called it Bigfoot Creek. There have been Bigfoot sightings here? No. Well, maybe a couple. That's not the point. Uh, I'm just saying, it's an urban legend, you know? People have been seeing weird things in the woods all over the world forever. Uh, the Shadow Man wasn't even the first time it happened in this area. No? What was? Well, uh, he talks about it in the poem. Uh, let me see. Craig looks at the book once more. Uh, yeah. Here. Uh, what's your game? What's that? Well, you know what a Wendigo is? Um, sort of? Uh, basically, they're people that ate human flesh and then turned into monsters. Like zombies? Uh, basically. Uh, but more animal-like. Okay. So Wendigos are a Native American legend from back east. Here on the west coast, they had the Weshuge. Uh, they're kind of the same thing, but... Uh, Wendigos made a choice to uh, turn into the monsters, whereas with the Weshuge, it's more of a punishment, like a curse or something. I mean, either way, they ended up feasting on human flesh. Gross. Yeah. It's gnarly. So, what does that have to do with the Shadow Man? I have no idea. I wouldn't be surprised if he was just pulling stuff out of his ass. I see. Do you mind if I hang on to this book for a while, Craig? Be my guest. Keep it as long as you want. Thank you. I push my chair back and pick up the book. Well, I'm going to try to get some rest. Thanks for humoring me. Sure thing. Oh, and I borrowed these from the kitchen. I hope that's all right. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Thanks, Craig. Good luck with your cataloging. Thanks. Enjoy the book. Thanks. And Scott. Yeah? If you need something, anything, you can talk to me, all right? Thanks, Craig. I appreciate it. Returning to my room, I set the book down on the side table and practically collapse onto my bed. Every part of me wants to fight sleep, fearing what new horror awaits me in my dreams. Eventually, however, my body wins out, aided somewhat by a caffeine crash, and I drift off to sleep. If I dream, I don't remember it. Upon waking, I'm pleased to see that I slept for nearly 12 hours, seemingly without incident. The rest of that night and the following day pass by in a haze. I spend most of the time in my room, leaving the premises only to get food. Every free moment is dedicated to studying Ransom Fortner's book of poetry, seeing if I can make any connection between the poems and what has been happening the past few days. I'd be lying if I said I was successful. Fortner's style is unconventional, and it's hard to make heads or tails of anything he wrote. 
Eventually, I decide to retrieve a few more books from Craig's library in an attempt to find any hidden details that I may have missed. I'm on the verge of giving up when, two days after the incident at the Cooper house, my phone rings, a little bit before noon. Hello? Hey, Scott. Travis, hi. You able to come over to my place? Now? Well, yeah. Uh... It's important. What's going on? Is everything alright? Yeah. Everything's cool. There's just something we need to show you. We? Charlie and me. Oh, right. So you coming or not? Uh, Yeah, Uh, sure. I'll be there soon. Cool. Make it quick. What? Alright. Charlie says there's no rush, but make it quick, yeah? Alright, Travis. Cool. See ya. Before I can say anything else, Travis hangs up. I look at my phone and sigh. Glancing at the pile of books and notes in front of me, I think perhaps it'd be good for me to get out for a while, even if it's just for a couple of hours. Around 40 minutes later, I find myself at Warren Auto Salvage, standing at Travis Warren's front door. The noonday sun sits directly overhead, illuminating the junkyard with its harsh light. There's not a shadow to be seen, at least until you reach the forest surrounding the junkyard. I glance back towards my car, looking past it at the road I drove up on. Even at this time of day, I can only see a little bit of the road before it disappears into the darkness of the forest. I hope this doesn't take too long. The thought of having to drive that road at night again makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I shiver, then quickly shake my head. Turning away from the forest, I raise my hand towards the door. As soon as I knock, I hear Travis call out from inside. Sydney? No, it... It's me. Oh. Uh, Doors open. Entering the house, I'm happy, and somewhat surprised, to see that Travis has been able to maintain its state of relative cleanliness. The living room is completely free of clutter, save for the coffee table. On it sits a couple of shoeboxes and an old cassette player. Charlie sits cross-legged at one end of the couch. She's wearing a sweatshirt that appears to be a couple sizes too large for her, presumably belonging to Travis. Hey, Scott. Hi. Hey, pull up a chair. Anywhere's good. Travis speaks to me from the kitchen. He appears to be fixing lunch. Thanks. Can I get you something? No, thank you. All right. After a moment's hesitation, I sit in a tattered armchair across the room from Charlie. She smiles at me briefly before looking towards the kitchen at Travis, resting her chin on her hand. Her smile disappears as she looks away. I sit awkwardly, not sure what to do or say. There seems to be a little bit of tension in the air. After a few moments, Travis walks into the room holding a glass of water in one hand and a paper plate carrying a sandwich and some chips in the other. He hands both of these to Charlie. Here you go. Aren't you going to eat something? I'm not hungry. Oh. Travis sits down on the couch next to Charlie. He crosses his arms and looks at the cassette player on the coffee table. The three of us sit in silence for a couple of minutes before I finally muster up the courage to speak. So, are we waiting for Sydney? Hmm? Oh, yeah. I called her a few minutes before I called you. I figured she would have gotten here first. Ah. Another ten agonizingly awkward minutes of silence pass before... All three of us jump slightly at the sudden noise. Travis stands and makes his way towards the door. Here we go. Hey, Sid. Hi. Sydney takes a few steps inside and stops. She glances at Charlie. Hey. Hey. Travis closes the door behind her and returns to his spot on the couch. 
Sydney scans the room before making eye contact with me. Oh. I didn't expect to see you here. Well, you know. Right. She turns back towards Travis. So, here I am. What did you want to show me? Go ahead and sit down. I'm fine standing. This might take a while. You should probably sit. Fine. Sydney rolls her eyes as she pulls up the same wooden chair that I had previously sat in during my first meeting with Travis. Well? Travis looks at Charlie. Go ahead. Travis breathes deeply, seemingly psyching himself up for whatever it is he's about to do. Very delicately, he reaches towards one of the shoeboxes on the coffee table and lifts the lid. The box is full of cassette tapes. Sydney stares at the box and its contents, frowning. Those are his, aren't they? Yeah. And you have these... Why, exactly? It's a long story. Yeah? You got somewhere to be? Sydney, please. Did you know about this? No. At least not... Um, excuse me. All three of them look at me. My mouth goes dry as I try to speak. Every part of me wants to just get up and leave. Listen, I'm not sure why I'm here exactly, and this seems like an extremely personal thing, so I'm, I'm going to... I stand up and start to make my way towards the door. No, please, stay. You should probably... You need to hear what's on some of these. Both of you do. I don't know. It's important. Trust me. I look at Travis for a moment, then back at the door. Finally, I look at Sydney. She's very clearly upset about the entire situation. I'll stay if you say it's all right, but if you want me to leave. Sydney places her head in her hands and makes a noise that's somewhere between a sigh and a scream. She takes a deep breath, then throws her hands down and looks at me. It's fine. You can stay. This whole thing's a mess anyway. Okay. I walk back over to my chair and sit. All right. I guess there's nothing else but to just start at the beginning. Travis leans forward and pulls one of the shoeboxes towards him. He fingers through the different cassettes before pulling out a tape marked with the number one. He pops open the door on the cassette player and inserts the tape. Snapping it closed, he hits the rewind button. The few seconds it takes for the tape to rewind seem to stretch into an eternity. When it's finally done, he looks at all of us, then presses play. Night Falls, California is a production of Night Falls Media. Episode 6, Poetry, was written and directed by Alexander Gregg and Robert F. Wilson, with original music by Tyler Tingey. This episode features Robert F. Wilson as Scott Sinclair, Alexis Ross as Sidney Cooper, Ken Osborne as Richard Nellis, Alexander Gregg as Craig West, with Harrison Langford as Travis Warren, and Jordan Aspen as Charlie Cooper. Want to know more? Visit nightfallsmedia.com, where you can find links to our social media, new episodes and new shows, merchandise, and more. Also, consider supporting us on Patreon, where you can get early access to episodes, exclusive merch, and behind-the-scenes content. Supporters on Patreon get access to new episodes a week before anyone else, and they only pay when new episodes release. Visit patreon.com slash nightfallsmedia to learn more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>